You are listening to The Book of Firsts, a podcast where we flick back through the pages of our guests' lives to uncover three of their most profound first-time experiences. A memorable first they've had, a first they want to have, and a first they wish they'd never had in the first place. I'm your host, Emma Tyndall, podcaster and producer, and this is The Book of Firsts. Today, I am joined by rapper, author, and broadcaster, Governor B. Governor grew up on a council estate in East London as a first-generation Brit whose parents had moved over from Ghana to the UK in their 20s. In his early adolescence, he was surrounded by a diverse community and a nurturing family. However, he also observed the dangers of gang violence, having to witness the loss of loved ones and the ease at which one can lose their way if they stray from the path. Not wanting to become a product of this environment, Gov combined hard work and determination and also found his faith in God, which led him to university to study business and journalism. However, he quickly realised that actually his true passions was with music and won his first MOBO award at just 19 years old. Governor became the first rapper in UK history to top the official Christian and gospel charts, has received two MOBO awards and three UMAs, as well as amassing over 15 million streams on his last two albums. As well as being incredibly musically talented, Governor is also the author of two books, host of the Lost Tapes podcast, a proud father to his son Ezra, and a motivational speaker. Following the, from the tragic death of his father in 2017, Governor wanted to act as an older brother to those experiencing grief and loss, challenging the preconceptions of what it means to be a man while aiming to protect, care, and guide those going through it now. In his words, a man is someone that can express both strength and vulnerability. Governor B, welcome to the book of firsts. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, speak to you. That was a lovely introduction. No, it's it's great to have you here. I've been really excited actually. I listened to your podcast on um uh, Elizabeth Day's How to Fail. I think it was last year and I was like I I absolutely loved it. Um so yeah, I've been wanting to speak to you for a while. So thanks for being thanks, here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I absolutely loved all of the firsts that you sent over to me um, because I think there is so much scope for such like interesting conversation in all of them. So I want to kick things off by talking to you about your first first, which is your memorable first experience. So do you want to tell me what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, this was results day and I was studying government and politics, English language, business studies and sociology and I thought that I would do really really well um, even though I hadn't really revised because that's basically how I'd got through all of my education educational years never revised for my GCSEs really still done really well but AS I opened my results and I got two E's and two U's and I was in shock for about five minutes just staring at that piece of paper thinking someone's made a mistake here and um yeah it's that moment that you realize you can't get through life winging it um as mm. much as I've done um and my friend who was messing about with me in class Nick um he got like two A's and two B's and I was like what's going on here <laughs> um but yeah that was my memorable experience 
I, I massively relate to that jump between GCSE and AS level. And I remember teachers saying about it at the time, it's like GCSE, you're literally remembering and regurgitating information. Whereas when it gets to A level, you actually have to have an opinion on it. And I find it so interesting that, you know, even as full blown adults, like I speak to my parents and they're like, yeah, I still remember where I was when I got my results. You know, it's something that's really <laughs> ingrained in us. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when I read that, I was like, that is kind of the trouble with our education system. Cause I think we do place so much value on, you know, a number or a letter on a page. Hmm. Did that, when you, when you saw those, those, those results, did it make you feel like unworthy or did you use it to spur you on? The initial reaction is I just felt really dumb. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> how am I this stupid? Yeah. Um, but I think it kind of pushed me into wanting to delve into what I was really interested in. Um, because in reality, you know, the way I was learning, you know, politics, sociology, business studies, English language, I actually found all of them really, really interesting. Um but I just didn't have the capacity to excel well at all of them, even if I did really get my head down. I don't think I'm like one of these naturally studious um, people that has like an amazing level of retention. Um, but it made me realize that actually, okay, sociology, I really, really like English language. I really, really like and business I like as well. These are the subjects in which I'm going to really like try and get my head down. Um, and obviously I was doing music at the same time as well, which I was excelling at outside of like the education system. So, you know, in that world, it's funny. I didn't really feel dumb at all. But as soon as I stepped into like sixth form, I felt like, wow, this is really, really hard work. Um, but I don't know, man. I see it both ways. I don't think anything in life comes easy. And there are things in life that you might not want to do and you might not be the best at, but you just have to work hard to grind out a result. And then there are other things in life that you find really, really enjoyable um, and that come quite naturally to you. And I guess life's about working out what those things are. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Do you listen to um, Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett? by any chance he, i've heard a, a couple of episodes yeah yeah he had this um pt on it's called james smith and he spoke about this particular subject and he said that we need to help more young people open the conversation of being like okay so you're not very good at this but there will be something out there that you you are good at and like what you said about music like that's where you knew that you were passionate and where you knew that you were good at something whereas mm. we can live you know our whole lives up to the age of 18 thinking we're really dumb and like what does that do to the rest of our lives and how we perceive ourselves do you know what I mean yeah I completely agree with that and I think the other thing as well is you know having a community of people um that are around young people that can help them think intentionally because I didn't really think too intentionally when I was younger I kind of just drifted through life drifted through school one teacher told me I was good at this so yeah I'll study that and another teacher mm -hmm. told me I was okay at that so I'll study that and you just kind of end up being 18 25 30 thinking mm, how did I get here I actually didn't think intentionally about any of these decisions and I've just ended up in this in this spot but I think if we can like help people think like what are you good at from like a really young age what do you enjoy from a really young age you're gonna make better decisions and more intentional decisions definitely yeah and I also found it interesting that you said that because um <laughs> when I, I think it was an unspoken you spoke about how from the age of 12 you were sort of selling sweets on the school playground at an upmarket mm -hmm. rate 
like would buy them and sell them on and stuff. And I just thought that is such business acumen. Like that is so switched on. And if a kid was doing that now, you'd be like, oh, well done. Like good thinking. No one told you to do that. And yet at the time you were probably penalized for that. Like if you got caught or whatever, like it's bonkers. Yeah, for sure, man. I think we show a lot of natural ability and natural gifting in some of the everyday things that we're drawn towards. Even if you're on a bad path in life, um, I do some work in prisons, uh, young offenders institutes, and I often tell them that some of you guys, <laughs> it sounds really bad, but you've had really successful drug lines. Like you're selling drugs and um, employing people essentially to do your dirty work for you. If you kind of transitioned from illegal activity into something legal and applied yourself you can use those same skills to do something that you'll be really proud of um so yeah i guess it's about figuring out our natural giftings and trying to channel, channel that into something positive uh, speaking of i guess like mentoring and stuff i know that you do a lot of mentoring with young people and um I mean, I think they are probably growing up in a very different world to us in a lot of regards in terms of like their fellow classmates might be earning, you know, five or 10 grand a week on posting TikToks or YouTube videos and stuff like that. And I wonder whether you notice a difference in how young people now observe education and academia as being this really important thing because I remember when I was at school I was like oh my gosh like I have to get an A I have to get an A I have to do really well but I wonder because now people are seeing all the other different avenues of work which are less conventional whether maybe they don't value academia in that sense as much yeah um yeah I think I do speak to a lot of young people that are maybe more fluid and realize that there are loads of ways to become successful in life and you know back in the day when <laughs> your teachers used to say oh if you fail these exams then that's you for life like you'll never yeah. achieve anything great and that's just not well it probably wasn't true back then to be fair but it's just not true now and I think it's that I think it was Einstein wasn't it that said um if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree it'll live its whole life thinking it's it's stupid and I think young people are are getting better at realizing that they're not stupid and everyone's good at something and they just have to find the avenue um but the interesting thing is I think teachers as well um are kind of reshaping how they view education and realizing that it's important to create safe environments for young people to flourish in whatever ways they want to so i'm speaking to more teachers that are trying new methods bringing kind of interesting points into their syllabus that are slightly more relatable to this generation so yeah i think it's a good thing i think fluidity is the word i'd use to describe where things are going you don't have to fit mm. perfectly into a certain you know box or educational system yeah, which is so exciting. And I think that that will, I always think about this sort of stuff. And I'm like, oh, I imagine when we're in our 50s and 60s and what are young people going to be like then? And I think that the whole generational thing is so interesting. And with stuff like this, mm. like with us all growing up and realizing, you know, being a teacher is the hardest job ever. And I would never criticize, you know, any of my teachers for pigeonholing me because we're part of a system, like you said. So yeah, it's definitely exciting to see where that could Go. What did you study at um, uh, AS level or A levels? I did uh, English, drama, geography and psychology. But similarly to you, I was really 
well, not similar to you. I don't know what grades you got, but GCSE, I was in bottom <laughs> sets for pretty much everything except English, right? And from like year seven to year 10, really, really struggled, had like private tutoring. And I was, all of all of my friendship group were really smart. And then as soon as I got to, it was kind of the opposite for me. Cause as soon as I then got to focus in on like English and drama, which was my two favorite things in the world, mm. I was suddenly really smart and I graduated school. <laughs> I mean, I won't blow my own trumpet, but I did really well. And I was like, this is insane because I literally spent the amount of nights I spent crying to my mom being like, I'm so mm. stupid. Um, but I do yeah, understand. That, that sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. But um, well done. Creativity. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just popping a quick note in here as I'm currently sat in the cozy and comfortable home of this season's sponsors, First and Last Coffee. This glorious cafe was ironically, and I'm not just saying this because it's on brand with the podcast, but it was the first coffee shop I ever set foot in when I moved to Toronto. And my God, did it set the bar high. The coffee honestly tastes amazing. The 60s vintage style interior is super quirky and fun and it takes every ounce of self-control I possess not to pick up one of their delicious breakfast sandwiches every morning on my way to work. If you're around the Annex neighbourhood, then you absolutely need to check them out. Pop in for a coffee, browse the vintage clothes rail or soak up the sun like I'm doing right now in their little courtyard area. Huge thank you to First and Last again for sponsoring the show. Speaking of, let's get back to it. So let's move on to your second experience. And this is a first experience you want to have. And I am so glad that you picked this one because I think <laughs> it's just like so incredibly relatable and brilliant. So I'll let you introduce it. Um, so yeah, it's being truly fearless without caring about what other people think. Because, you know, when I reflect on my work, my my friendships, my my family, when I look at like my truly unfiltered thoughts, sometimes it's really hard to get them out because, you know, just being really honest and vulnerable, I'm scared of how like I'll be perceived or what people might think of me um, when it comes to my work. You know, my art and my natural instinct might be to take the music or the presenting in a slightly different direction. But I'm like, well, everyone's going this way and this is what's cool right now and trendy right now and on brand. So I got to do that. And I've just realized all my decisions or most of my decisions are run through a filter of what are other people going to think? And sometimes that can be quite debilitating. So yeah, I guess it's just getting to the point where I can just make a fearless decision without a worry in the world. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I feel like it's an intrinsic human condition, right? To just compare yourself mm. and and, and and not only that, but take it one step further and judge yourself on your action based on how other people will perceive you. And I remember reading in, I think it was Unspoken, you said this line, and I'm going to read it now because I thought it was so good. It says that only by being honest and attuned to my emotional self have I got a chance of cutting my teeth in this world, a world where survival does not rest on being the toughest, but on knowing who you are and having the confidence and the courage to show it. And I just think this is so, so true. But mm. my question to you would be like, what what would being truly fearless look like, do you think? Yeah, I think the first thing is um, learning how to process 
um, for me personally because I'm really bad at processing my thoughts, my feelings, the things that I'm facing because um, I'm an internal processor. And so I have to find ways of getting it out either onto a page in the form of like writing lyrics or going to counseling um, to have help in getting out my thoughts and that kind of stuff. But it's only when, you know, I block out the noise and find like my voice and, and what I think that I'm able to put myself in a position to make a decision. And once I realize what I'm thinking and once I've processed, then it's about being authentic to myself. You know, no outside influences should have an impact or effect on a decision that I make and yeah for me if I process and then stay authentic to myself and true to myself and make that decision then I think I'm doing all right but it's when I start thinking okay cool I should do this but what will that person think and what will yeah. the music industry think and what will my publishers think and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. you know it, it kind of surprised me that you picked this one not not because I, I mean I think the themes are really you know assimilated to, to to your work and even your music and and the books that you've written but I thought that you do come across as really vulnerable and authentic and very introspective and so do you think it do you think it is possible to fully detach from others opinions of yourself mm. maybe not um and thanks for saying that but I guess we all know ourselves better than other people do so like for yeah. me you come across like really great at your job and really authentic and you're asking like <laughs> amazing conversations and then you seem really really interesting but you might only be letting me into like you know 30 percent of what mm. you're capable of in terms of authenticity so i think we need to take like self-awareness into account and the fact that we might not know each other as as well as we know ourselves um yeah such but i don't know man yeah it's just yeah. a constant a constant challenge and the thing is these days there's so much noise and so many opinions um in the world that i actually don't know what i think anymore because i'm I like know. is this just like <laughs> regurgitated stuff that i've consumed on social media or in news outlets or whatever or is this just actually what like isaac thinks about this situation and it's really hard to decipher that sometimes that is such a good point because I have this probably every day where I'll think something and then see someone said something different and I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, do I do I think that? And I this is one thing I struggle with so much is just like I always have like sticking with my guns. Even when it comes mm. to work and things, like I sort of flip between podcasting and telly and I freelance and things like that. And it's like Emma, just pick a job and like go with it and do it. And I'm so <laughs> indecisive. I can't. Um but yeah, speaking are, of yeah, I know. But speaking of creativity, though, I do think that in in I guess both of our professions, we are actually massively impacted by other people's opinions and perspectives based just on like a like our jobs. Like, if for example, mm. you know, you release music, if other people don't like that music, you don't have a job, and so of course it's going to massively affect us. But <laughs> I don't know how how do we detach our own self worth from that. Yeah, I think for me, it's been about redefining success, you know, like mm. take music, for example, when I got into it, um, success would probably have looked like 
you know, selling X amount of records or touring around the world or walking down the street and someone coming up to you saying, I love your music, you'd feel successful. And, you know, some of that stuff has happened. But the problem is when you go through a pandemic, for example, and you're not touring anymore or there's so much interesting things happening online that not as many people are buying your music anymore, then you feel unsuccessful. And I realize that it's really dangerous to put my success in the hands of others. Um, mm. And so I had to redefine it for myself. And now I guess my definition is, you know, doing the best with the gift of music that I've been given and whatever context I'm in and just putting out whatever the best I've got to give is. And as long as I'm doing that, if five people like it or 50,000, I'm successful. And I think the great thing about defining success in that way is that if you're, you know, my parents are from like a village in Ghana called Darkoma. And I'm like, if you're a kid in that village and only two people care about what you're doing, then you're still successful because you're doing your best in that context. And if you're flipping Adele doing the best, then you're still successful, but it's, it's transferable across all types of context so yeah it's just a redefinition of success definitely yeah i think that's such 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 a good point i love that i need to plaster that across my ceiling in the morning when i'm like i'm a failure (laughs) oh yeah definitely when do you think you felt most fearless in your music career like can you pinpoint a time do you think uh definitely after i had a couple of losses in my life um so my dad passed away and then one of my best mates daisy and i got to see their bodies um after they had passed just to pay my respects and stuff and i remember like looking at them thinking oh like this life is just so fickle and short and especially for my dad he just like you know worked and then passed away and i'm like there's got to be more to life than this and i think when you've lost someone so close to you little things like um (laughs) what people think about a song you've released but don't matter as much anymore and so yeah I think I truly became more fearless um after that but I still don't I don't think like fearlessness is a destination I think it's like a journey Mm -hmm. so you never reach like the pinnacle of fearlessness I think you can always be a bit more fearless and yeah I'm just on that journey full of ups and downs I guess bringing bringing up your dad, you know, your your final first experience that you wished you never had was obviously losing a parent. And I think in both of your books, you write so beautifully about your dad. And it's clear that he had obviously a, a massive impact on your life. And I don't think that grief is ever easy to sort of navigate or define. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you because you you spoke about that you you don't think that you handled it very well. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say because I don't think you can, there is no right or wrong way to handle when something like that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you, why do you think that is? Um, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe my choice of words could have been better, but in terms of like, I didn't handle it well, I meant I didn't handle it in the healthiest way for myself and the people around me that my actions would have affected um and that's because you know when it happened I just did typical guy thing I suppose of like blocking it out and trying to move on really really quickly and get myself to a point where I'm okay and I didn't allow myself time to process to 
be emotional, to cry. As soon as any ounce of emotion was kind of coming to the surface, I'd block it out and try and keep busy. And it ended up in me kind of breaking down a few months later. Um, and so when I look back, I think, ah, if I just allowed myself to let go and be vulnerable, I don't think I would have got to a crisis point of like breaking down and yeah, I guess handling it in, in a way that allows me to process it might have been healthier for me and might have had like a bit more of a, a better impact on the people that are, you know, directly influenced by my, my actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally understand that for sure. Did your, um, your faith in, in Christianity, um, how did that play a part in getting you through that time? Was it, was it a help or, or did it become like a frustration almost? Um, it actually became a, a frustration, you know, and a bit of a hindrance in a way, because um, I think culturally my parents are Ghanaians, like I said, and they are Christians as well. And I think Christianity for them means that everything has to be okay all the time because we have mm. faith in God. Um, and so I knew that, but everything wasn't okay and it didn't feel okay. And it just felt like I was lying to myself to pretend that just because I have faith, it's fine. And so I actually had a real battle um, with my faith because I'm like, you know, God, why did my dad get taken so quickly? He had like this really aggressive form of cancer and by the time he found out he was gone within two weeks and doesn't feel fair and all this stuff um so it was actually really hard but I guess the one thing that really helped um in regards to faith was the idea of like light at the end of the tunnel and that idea of like heaven being the only opportunity to see my dad again and obviously we know these things because you know most of the funerals that I've been to are in churches and like christenings and stuff like that and you're like oh yeah this feels lovely but it becomes more real when when you lose someone and I'm like oh yeah so if I want to see my dad again like heaven's the only chance of that and that gives me a lot of faith and hope and light Mm -hmm. so it ended up being a bit of a lifeline actually because you know the thought of of not seeing him again is is really heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's awful. And I'm 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 so sorry that you went through that, especially something when it's so it's so quickly and, and tragic. And I know that you went through kind of like a series of losses as well at the time, which just must have been so heartbreaking. Um how did I guess how did losing your dad affect, you know, you're you're a dad yourself to Ezra, right? So mm. How did that affect, um, or d- did it did it have an impact on how you raise your own child, or how you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think I looked at all the things that my dad did really well. Um, like he was a hard worker, provided for the family, um, always there to do favors. Would always drop me to the airport for like gigs and stuff, so I wouldn't have to pay for airport mm-hmm. parking and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's sick, man. I'd want to continue. Um, doing those things for my son. But then I also looked at the things that I lacked from my dad um, and he wasn't the greatest at, you know, communicating and having conversation. He would only really talk to me if like, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Have you done the washing up, you done your chores or go to the shop for me or whatever. But yeah. he never really delved deeper. And yeah, I think I really lacked that um, now that I look back. And so with my son, 
you know, I'm always saying things like, I love you and how was your day and how do you feel about this? And he's probably thinking, Dad, I'm only two years old, like, let yeah. me, like leave me alone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I want to, I think if with every generation, my dream is that, you know, I'm a better man than my dad was, my son's a better man than I am. And yeah, so I think it's looking at the things my dad done well, trying to replicate that and then looking at the things that I missed from him and trying to engineer that into my life and the life of my son yeah oh that's so beautiful I think it's such a true of a generational thing as well I know we keep coming back to that but you know that generation they didn't really know how to communicate and especially with men and I think that's why unspoken is so interesting and I do really want to talk to you about that more in terms of toxic masculinity and why men feel like they can't talk about their emotions when it is such a sign of strength is that sort of where that journey started for you yeah, I think so. And and the reason is, um, you know, the thing that sparked it was I was in uh, Newport in California um, and I went for a little walk on the beach and I felt really heavy that morning. And whenever I feel heavy, I never really used to talk about it because it just felt like my burden to carry. Um, and then walking along that beach, I just burst into tears. And I was like, you know, you do the thing where you try and stop yourself crying and then you become like even more of an ugly crier because you're trying to stop crying, but you can't <laughs> yeah. stop crying. I was doing that thing. Um, but then when I eventually stopped, I felt so light and free. And I just remember thinking, why is this such a bad thing? Why do I block it out when I actually feel better after I've expressed myself emotionally and let it out? And why have we been conditioned as guys from like, well, I'm from a working class background, but I think men in general to like, you know, do this stiff upper lip thing and don't show emotion and just get on with stuff. Like I get it. I get that there's positives to that, but I actually think that when our mind and our body is telling us to be vulnerable, we have to listen. Otherwise we'll crash like, like I did. And so, yeah, that's really what sparked it. The fact that after I was emotional, I felt better and lighter. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I, I I cry all the time. <laughs> I mean, like, so, but I I do know what you mean. It's more it's more accepting almost for for women to cry because of the stereotypes that we've been raised in to see us like conditionally as these set entities. It's going to be a hard one to reconstruct, I suppose. I think so. And like you mentioned, women, and and the interesting thing I realized is my mum has. Um, a lot of anxiety and I think a portion of that is actually because she's had to pick up the emotional baggage um that myself my dad and my brother didn't display so she could clearly see okay they're feeling down today or something might be wrong with my dad or me or my brother but we're not showing any emotion so she's kind of worrying for us so I think that sometimes it's quite interesting if men don't open up and learn how to be healthy emotional beings then the women in our lives will have to pick up that for us and that isn't fair um so it's not just kind of like self-love it's actually looking out for the people around us as well this is quick fire first so um i'm gonna basically there's loads of prompts in here which should spark maybe some memories or things like that and um i will read them out and you have to tell me the first thing that comes into your head so it doesn't have to be the first time 
that thing happened it just needs to be like the first thing you think of so our first one is a time you felt seen on stage at Wembley oh nice when was that that was probably like 2014 the song was part of like a big community event it was pretty sick and I got seen by some people. <laughs> <laughs> was that like your biggest um, gig to date? Or was it um, just that it was at Wembley? And Yeah, I think it wasn't the biggest, but it's just because it's like Wembley Arena. It's a bit iconic. Grew up um, reading, learning a lot about it, watching a lot of shows online. So yeah, it felt good yeah. to be there. Nice, nice. Love that. Okay, my next one is... A time you laughed so hard that you cried. <laughs> Probably with my friends. Um, my friend Barney has kind of like attic bedroom stuff. And yeah, I just went back to that. It was probably over something stupid, like us taking the piss out of each other. Um, but yeah, I always belly laugh, cry with my friends. Oh, it's the best. Like when I when I laugh so hard, I cry. I'm like... I just want to have this every day. I went yeah. through a time when I think maybe it was lockdown. And, you know, when we were all just like kind of, I mean, making someone laugh over Zoom is a challenge. So <laughs> but I just couldn't remember the the, t- the last time that I'd like fully properly laughed with people. <laughs> and it made yeah. me feel so empty. I was like, as if. like <laughs> It's mad. Have you ever like um laughed so much you've cried and then you can't? kind of brief because your ribs are hurting yeah and yeah it's, i actually remember one of the times was it's normally over youtube videos but there was a guy doesn't sound very nice but it's really funny i think his name's ferdy and there was a guy riding a bike and crashed into him while he was like fitting the tire and his reaction was like hilarious but it's on youtube um so type it <laughs> in if you want to belly laugh <laughs> and do you ever find Good. that yeah sometimes you'll find something funny but then when you're with your friends, it's like 20 times funnier just because you're with other people. Yeah, yeah I find 100%. That. Laughing is just the best medicine for anything. In fact, when I was in therapy, I was um I was working this job, which I hated, and I was running errands all the time. And my therapist said to me, he was like, next time something bad happens, Emma, just just try and laugh. Just just see if you can laugh. Like next time you feel like crying, see if you can laugh. And I was in the car and I'd done this massive shop for this crew and it, uh, it all stacked up in the back and I had to slam on the brakes and everything in the shop <laughs> flew forward, like mess oh, everywhere. Man. And I literally looked in my wing mirror and I just burst out laughing. And... I- <laughs> And it was like, I was just sat at this roundabout, just laughing. And I was like, oh, that's actually, that's actually really helped. Like, fuck mm. it. I just going to laugh about it. So, yeah. I love that, man. <laughs> it's good advice. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And it makes you realise, like, you're here now. Do you know what I mean? You survived that. It's not as, like, massive as it seemed at the time, not to downplay it. But, yeah, man, laughing just makes you realise life most of the time ain't that deep, man. You'll survive it. Keep it moving, yeah. you know? Yeah, 100%. So good. Couldn't have put it better myself. Okay, what did you actually do? Like, did you uh, just deliver it like that? or? <laughs> no, I then got back and had to rebag it all, by which point I wasn't really <laughs> laughing. But at least the initial reaction, I found it funny. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so our final one is God, I can't even read my own writing. Um, oh, a time, oh, this is quite deep. Um, a time you wished you were someone else. Oof. Time I wished I was someone else. Maybe Stormzy at Glastonbury. That looked very epic. I was like, bro, it'll be sick to be Stormzy right now on stage at Glastow with everyone rapping the lyrics. I was so annoyed. So I was at Glastonbury, right? And my friends were all at, oh, where were we? We were on the other stage. I can't even remember who we were watching. That's how irrelevant it was. And I was like, I want to mm. see Stormzy. I want to see Stormzy. Like, no, no, we're going to stay here. <laughs> and then now everyone's like, it was like the best thing of the yeah. whole. <sighs> Your friends definitely set you up there. Skipped a beat, didn't we? <laughs> anyway but yeah no that would have been sick how about you oh i don't know time i wished i was someone else the way i think that question is like um pitching myself in a really embarrassing moment and like wishing that i was someone uh, okay. else <laughs> um, i feel like i need to roll with you for like 24 hours sounds like very <laughs> interesting unfortunate things happen in your life <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> but yeah that was so fun thank you so much for coming on the podcast my pleasure it's been really good speaking to you man thanks for uh, having me no worries um what have you got coming up have you got any also I read sorry I just realized I asked you a question and then completely cut you off I read that you are are you writing a um children's book with your wife yes we've written the children's book You've that comes out it. next year it's called where granddad lives and it's basically a book i need to work on my elevator pitch for it really this is like the first time anyone's asked oh, me about sorry. it <laughs> I it's, just... no it's cool man it's to help uh, explain grief to young people in a fun way um so granddad or grandma or auntie uncle friend sister brother is not here right now but they had an amazing impact on the earth and they're still alive in some way oh i love that that's yeah, amazing oh i can't Excited wait to see it. it come out